If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to begin. Uh, this morning, we are in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is actually a letter. It was a letter written about 2,000 years ago to Rome, most likely from Corinth. Here on the back uh, or on the screen above me, you can see uh, it was written most likely from Corinth by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, to a church that Paul had never actually uh, been to. And in opening the letter, he writes, Paul called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So most of what we've been covering through this series of, of uh, the book of Romans, we call it the gospel light. His whole message in the book of Romans is about the gospel. And he is called as an apostle, uh, apostle to bring forth obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations, according to the first chapter of verse 5. And in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, setting the stage for what would occur throughout the book of Romans or the letter to the church at Rome, he says, it is the power of God, referring to the gospel, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So in this letter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with two primary groups of people, those that are Jews by physical lineage and those who are Gentiles, basically everyone else. And he interacts with these two groups of people throughout the letter, and, and he discusses a variety of things. And as we proceed forward into chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about how we ought to live. And he said, those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, um, it's basically death. But to set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. So those who have been, uh, who are following Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are living in a particular way. But there was this problem that even though they were living according to Christ, um, they would encounter suffering. But the Apostle Paul says, for all things, God works together for good for those who love him. And then he introduces this interesting passage in chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in trying to uh, basically explain this life of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, enduring suffering until you finally uh, arrive in glory uh, someday before God, the Apostle Paul tries to encourage them and let them know essentially that there is more going on behind the scenes than what they realize that God is in control. Now this is kind of confusing to some people because Here's the idea. Most people, if you think about it like this, as an apple, this is what's called an illustration. If I offer you an apple today to eat, you just simply have a decision. Do I want the apple or, or do I not want the apple? And you take it from me by faith. It is a gift of mine to give to you if you decide to take it. Well, when we're, let's back up one, uh, one slide there. When we discuss salvation, when we talk about Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, at some time, someone's probably said something to you like this. Hey, God created the world, mankind sinned, he rebelled against God, but God had a plan of salvation. And that salvation was his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father sent Jesus 
to be born of a virgin, live a perfect sinless life, and lay down his life as a sacrifice for you and I. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we stand before God as sinners. But if we turn and repent and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God will forgive us of our sins, he will set us free from sin, and we can live a life for him someday resurrected in glory with Christ. Well, that's kind of the, the apple that we talk about. It's talking about, hey, this is, is salvation. Do you want it or not? But in the kind of formula that the Apostle Paul lays out here behind me on the screen, this is what's going on before and what's going on after. And we don't often talk about that. Like if I were to just offer you an apple, I typically don't say, hey, would you like an apple? And this apple started out as a seed in Washington and they grew it up into a tree and they most likely sprayed a lot of chemicals on it at some point. And then they picked it and sprayed some more chemicals on it and they arrived at the store and I bought it and here you go. And you'd be like, eh, I don't know about that. And so that's kind of what's going on in this letter is most of the time we just talk about the apple, but there's actually some deeper questions that sometimes occur about salvation, just like there are maybe chemicals on the, the apple. You're like, no, I want to know about how the apple came to be. Is that organic or is that just one of those chemical apples that I don't like? And so here the Apostle Paul unveils a little bit more about what's happening in salvation and the whole idea of setting your mind on the things of Christ, living for him and, and enduring suffering. That's kind of on the inside of that. That's more on the number five there. And the apple that we talk about most of the time occurs in three and four. This calling, the idea that God uses his Holy Spirit and his word and those who preach it to call people to salvation. So most of the time we're working within number three and number four. When we actually trust Jesus and ask for forgiveness, he forgives us and we stand justified, not by our works, but by his grace. So most of the time, we are talking about number three and number four and someday looking forward to number five. But it's number one and number two that really throw people for a loop here. And it does Paul as well. Beginning in, in verse uh, two of chapter nine, let's set up a little bit more background here. He says this, speaking of his country, uh, fellow countrymen and fellow Jews, he says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could... For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for, um, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So there was a problem here apparently in Paul's day. Apparently many of his Jewish brothers had not accepted the gospel. And, and that seems really odd because the very Christ, the Messiah, came from the Jewish people. And he, there was this kind of tension within uh, the Christian church is this gospel really true if the majority of the Jews in which this, this Messiah or Savior came from reject him? And he begins to explain. He says, they are Israelites, referring to a, a nation. So he begins to list out all these different blessings. We can go to the next slide here, uh, Chris. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, over all, blessed forever. Amen. So they have all these blessings, but these blessings don't save them. They can be related, they can have all this good stuff, but it still doesn't save them. 
So what's going on here? And Paul answers this. He says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel here referring to a son who was called Jacob, who was a descendant of Abraham, and he was renamed Israel. And Paul is saying here, all of his descendants actually don't belong to Israel. And he gives examples, and he continues forward. And in verse 8, he says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul is beginning to recount some of the early aspects, this foreknowing and this predestination. And he's recounting that God has acted in the same way in the history of the world as he is today. And he's using Israel as an example and some of his descendants. Not all the descendants of Israel would be saved. He says that it's dependent upon the promise. And in verse 9 of chapter 9, he continues and he says, For this is what the promise said about this time next year. In other words, God in his foreknowledge knew, and he's using this example of Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, through though they were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election and I might continue, but not because of works, but because of him who calls and not man's works. She was told the older will serve the younger. So long ago in the history of Israel, uh, a, a descendant from all the Jews, he had a wife and his wife had two children. They were twins. And before they were even born, God tells them the older will serve the younger. So in his foreknowledge, he knows who they are and how they will turn out to be. And then finally, in verse 13, he says, As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's actually a quote from Malachi, from a prophet who lived many, many years after this. And so Paul is writing, and he is saying that God was justified. What he foretold would happen, happened. The older did serve the younger, and the older became this a father of a very evil nation. And in Malachi, God is discussing his judgment on this, these nations. So we went through some deep stuff real quickly just to get to our text today. Here's where I want to go with this this morning. Who is God's people? Uh, this is a huge question within the church, within the history of Christianity, because we have all of this Old Testament uh, data and all this Old Testament um, that leads up to the New Testament. And we just went through and we saw, uh, let's go back one side, Chris, all these blessings that uh, the people of this, uh, or all of the people in most cases and some of the people in some cases as time progressed received all these blessings from God. And it just seems like, man, they have all these blessings. They must be the people of God. And not only that, but we get to the New Testament, Jesus himself is this Jew, and it seems like, wow, what's going on here? What, what happened to the Jewish people? Because many of them had rejected the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul is about to explain God's choosing his predestination and how he selects and how we respond. And you'll begin to understand that it is not based upon your physical descent, nor upon man's will, but on God's mercy. 
So the people of God are simply this. Those who respond to God's mercy and his calling, and they can be Jewish, they can be non-Jewish. And that's kind of the summary of where we'll get to. But let's begin in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? In other words, is God's method of saving people in the history of Israel or even in Paul's day, is it unfair? Is, is it God who's this, this mad, wild scientist, this evil man who's up there pre-programming people to just do evil and he's casting them into hell and others he's not? Is that the way it works? No, that's, that's not what he explains here. He says this. And by the way, our text this morning will go through the end of chapter 9, and it's broken up into two passages. In verse 14, he introduces this question, what shall I say then? And again in verse 30, he says, what shall I say again? Verse 19 uh, follows up a couple additional questions. But in the second half of verse 14, he starts out with this. Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? If we're talking about predestination and his foreknowledge, is God unjust? That's a huge, huge question. How does all this work? Well, he gives some examples. He says, first of all, by no means, verse 15, he says, for he says to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, for those of you who uh, aren't aware of this, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So that seems a little bit harsh, right, at first? But if you know where that passage comes from, that's not God predestining someone to hell and someone to heaven. What he's referring to there is God in his mercy is revealing himself to Moses in this amazing, miraculous way where he he shows Moses an aspect of who he is, but it is based upon God's mercy. In other words, we should not get upset if God is merciful and reveals himself in certain ways to certain people. That is entirely on his part. He can do what he likes. In other words, I've never heard anyone say, man, it's just so unfair. I didn't have the same Damascus Road experience as the Apostle Paul. Man, God's so unjust. No, we don't, we don't talk about it like that. So what we're talking about here is this. We're talking about after these people have been born, they have been born, they've rebelled against God, even though God in his creation, we saw this in chapter two, has revealed himself to all mankind. And in that way, as God in his foreknowledge knows them, he chooses to have mercy on some people and reveal himself in even a greater way than through his creation. So we're not talking about pre-selecting for damnation or for salvation. We're talking about a revelation of a relationship and an aspect of God's character in time, in life. And he continues forward in verse 17. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and people really get upset at this passage, by the way. They think this is God being the mad scientist damning someone to hell. It is not that. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, there you go. Apparently God does do it. Apparently God just uses people for his twisted purposes. I've, I've heard people say that. Poor Pharaoh didn't have a chance. Well, I want to encourage you to turn to that passage of scripture, and let's see what's going on there. Exodus chapter 9, 
verses 12 through 17. For those of you not familiar with the Bible, that's like really early in the Bible. So turn way back to the beginning and then turn to the right. Exodus chapter 9. Now, this might not be important to you. You might think, well, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. I'm good. Or quite frankly, you might be sitting here and going, you know what? I don't want anything to do with them. Well, this is God acting in history. And this God that we claim that, that loves you and wants to know you, he has acted consistently in history. And he d has done so out of incredible mercy, even when he hardens. So beginning in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 9, he says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And it might seem, all right, well, Pharaoh had no chance at that point. No, it, it, that's not what it says at all. He, he continues and he says, And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So Moses had approached Pharaoh several times about letting his people go out of Egypt. And at this point, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart because he has a purpose. He wants to use him. He has had the entire chance all the way up into this point in life to accept or reject God, the God of the Israelites or, or the, the Jews of those day, that day. This is not talking about hardening Pharaoh's heart and predestining him to damnation. No, this is one point in time in which God is going to use him. And this is going to be true throughout all of history and even today. Our, say, our kings and our presidents, the New Testament says God has elected them. He has placed them there. He can use both those people that know him and those that don't for his good purpose. So he does use evil kings throughout the entire Old Testament for his glory. He doesn't approve of it, but he can use it. In this case, he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. But then, in verse 13, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourselves before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and on your people. And notice this, this is key. So that you may know. So the God of all of creation has a desire for the Pharaoh to know something. What does he want him to know? That there is none like me in all the earth. So not only has God not damned the Pharaoh in Egypt in that day to hell, he actually wanted him to know him. And he's doing this for this very reason. And he says, verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, they could be dead. God's mercy here. He not only hardened him, but now he's having mercy, and he's had mercy for a long time. He said, I could have done that. But, verse 16, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. Once again, he desires the Pharaoh know him. A lot of people in the Old Testament think it's all about Israel. No. Here he's, he's reaching out. He's doing incredible things in the acts and lives of the Egyptians, and specifically, personally, this Pharaoh, that to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself. Notice this. He's moved from the hardening to this acting before Moses yet once again, and at this point, the Pharaoh himself is still exalting himself. 
this is not God still hardening his heart without hope. So God is moving in the lives of people, both unbelievers and believers throughout the history of time. He has mercy on some. He hardens some at certain times. But this is really important. Not one place in the entire Bible does God say that he has predestined people for damnation. Like he's this mad scientist creating people, little robots, to go to hell. And you might say, well, we're about to talk about something that sure seems like that. No, we're going to look at that once again. But even in the case of Pharaoh, God was actively moving in his life, desiring that he know him. But the Pharaoh himself continued to exalt himself. Well, back into Romans chapter 9, verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Once again, reaffirming the fact that at any time in people's lives, God can move and have mercy and even harden some people for his good purpose. But once again, it is not the idea of predestination. The only time that you ever hear of predestination referred to and it explained is in Romans chapter 8, and we just looked at it right up here, the plan, think of it as a blueprint, the plan or the blueprint for all of those whom God foreknew was that you would be conformed to the image of his son. There's no other plan. That plan might vary between people, but there's no other plan. There's not a plan that says, I'm predestinating Bob to hell, or I'm predestinating uh, Kathy to heaven. That's not it. The predestination is always referred to as God's plan. Verse 19, he says, so the first question was, is God unjust? And then there's two more questions that he follows it up in this first section. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? So right off the bat, he pulls the God card and he says, quite honestly, God's God. Frankly, he could really do whatever he wants. Who are you to answer back to God? And he gives this illustration. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So boy, this sure sounds like once again, that maybe God does predestine people to, to hell and others to, to heaven. No, he, he explains it in verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath once again, think back to the Pharaoh example. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? So just like the Pharaoh example, we have a living being who has received God's mercy for a great period of time. God's endured these vessels, and he describes them vessels of wrath. Just like you and I were born sinners, and God had mercy enduring our sin until a point in time in which he revealed himself to us, and we made a decision, hopefully in our case, to follow him. So he's enduring these vessels of wrath, and in this, he has prepared them for destruction. That's the scary part. This isn't a preparing beforehand like you're about to read, he is just preparing them for destruction. So in other words, you can live your entire life and God has mercy on you, enduring you, 
in this example as a potter has made this this vessel for dishonorable use and he's using it using it using it and finally there comes a judgment and and the vessel will be destroyed in the, the case of mankind there is a great white throne judgment that the bible talks about heaven or hell and and you might be living by all sorts of philosophies in here today but there is certain realities that you cannot get around you are born you live and someday you're going to die. And the question is, is there nothing? Or is what the Bible says is true? There is an actual final judgment. And are you prepared for that? Well, if you're not, you're just simply being prepared for destruction. He continues on and he says this. Uh, In order that, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So this gets back to God's foreknowledge and his predestination. Always when you see this prepared forehand is referring to his particular plan of glory. In, in the slide above here, it's number five, this predestination to be conformed to the image of his son for eventual glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul uses some scripture to kind of flesh this out. We have to move quickly here at this point. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, for those of you taking notes, that's Hosea 2, verse 23. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who, had, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, They will be called sons of the living God. So the prophet Hosea, man, you want to talk about life as a prophet, he had a hard time. God calls Hosea back in the day to preach basically repentance to the nation of Israel, and they don't do it. You know what he does? He asks Hosea, believe it or not, to marry a harlot, a prostitute, and they have kids. And the the kids, he names these wild names. They're living illustrations for the entire nation. So think of this. Hosea's out preaching to this nation, this rebellious nation, and everyone knows that Hosea marries this prostitute and he has kids. You know what his daughter's called? Imagine getting tagged with this name. His daughter's called No Mercy. That's the name of his daughter, No Mercy. And he uses his daughter as an illustration to the nation of Israel. You know what his son is called? His son is called Not My People. Not Bob or Harry, Not My People. Hey, uh, I got an order for a Big Mac here. Uh, Is this Not My People? Yeah, that's literally the son's name, Hosea's son. So when it says here, as uh, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. He's literally referring to a person there. And this person represented a rebellious nation, Israel. He says, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, in verse 25. So in Hosea, he's beginning to prophesy that these people who are rebellious, and he's going to send them into um, to basically uh, another nation to be destroyed. He's saying, wait a minute. I am going to have mercy, 
but it's not necessarily going to come from all those people. In verse 26, and in the very place where it said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So there's this introduction in the Old Testament that there's going to be more to the story than just the physical descendants of the Jews. There is going to be more. In verse 27, he says, And in Isaiah, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be the, as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 28, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And so as they're taken into exile, many of the Israelites are killed. But there is a remnant that is saved. And in Isaiah 1.9, he says, uh, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So a vast majority of the Jews have been killed, but God still has mercy. And in the second half of this passage that he introduces with the same question in verse 30, he says, what then shall we say? And instead of answering questions, he just lays it out plain and simple. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Notice this. The Gentiles weren't pursuing it. They weren't following the law. They weren't uh, following any of the things that the, the individuals in Paul's day were trying to do to earn their salvation. No, Paul just simply says they weren't trying to pursue righteousness, but they have received it, and he explains that it is a righteousness that is by faith. So it's this amazing story that Paul has explained in the history of Israel and how God works. That it's not by works, it's not by your lineage, it's simply by faith and the activities of God. And this faith is not a work, as, as some of my Calvinist friends like to put it. And it's not even a gift in a sense that you have to make a choice at some point. And what is this choice about? Well, he, he explains this in verse 31 through verse 33. He says, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, referring to Isaiah 28, 16, as well as Psalm 118, 22. He quotes Paul here to close us. Behold, I am laying in Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So notice the believing here is excluded from works. When we say that you're to repent of your sins and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that is not a work. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But you must make a decision to believe or not to believe. Here he's referring to a very visual picture of a stone if you go to Israel today, you will still see this, this imagery. There's not a whole lot of wood buildings or anything else. A lot of the buildings are made out of stone or stucco. It's a very arid land, and there are very few trees. And as you would build a building, you would have to pick out certain stones in order to lay the foundation. And you know this if you've ever like made a stone, uh, for instance, chimney. You want the right stones, and you're trying to, to work through them. Well, 
Jesus actually used this verse in the Gospels, and he's, he's talking about on the cornerstone that the, the, the builders have rejected. You see, the Jews were wanting their Messiah to fit their plan. And their plan was following the law and did not include any heart change. And I say the Jews... decision they had their idea on how people were saved and how people came to know God and how people lived and that's true right now right here in this church given a crowd this size there are some people in here that have their own idea on how they can have a relationship with God they've made it up and it might be at works based where if they just believe they do the right things for a long enough time their whole life in the end maybe god is this great god and he'll just judge them and they're pretty good they're better than most people after all they'll say and god will let me into heaven the problem is that's just made up that has no foundation in history or god's revelation what the apostle paul just laid out for us and that we went through very quickly was a real life scenario it is history recounted. God isn't a philosophy. He's a person who created this world and everything in it and has acted within that world in history. And time and again, in his revelation, he says there's one way that you can come by to me, and that is through faith based upon his grace or his mercy. And the only acceptable sacrifice, the only acceptable way of that mercy that is poured out is his son, Jesus Christ, this stumbling stone. And that's the decision that the Jews of Paul's day had to make. Will we accept this Messiah or will we reject him? He doesn't fit into our plan, but God's predestined plan that we be conformed to, that image is the only way. So when you're trying to decide, are you a part of the people of God? That's what it comes down to. That's that simple decision on the apple. Do you accept the apple or not? It's not yours to give or to take, it's a gift. And it requires a decision. You make the judgment whether you want it or not, God's calling. But someday you will be judged and so will I. The question is, will you have the apple or not? Or will you show up empty-handed. I pray that you do make the decision to choose the Messiah, this Jesus who is our Savior, the Christ. That's a decision that you must make. It was a decision that Pharaoh had to make. It was a decision that we all must make. And I pray you make it today if you've never made it before. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so very much for your grace in my life. I am chief among sinners, just like Paul wrote. I, I don't deserve anything, but I am so thankful that you are a God of mercy, a God of love who does call us. I thank you that we can trust that you're operating behind the scenes in some ways that we just don't know, but that you do have a plan for those you, you foreknew. 
that you do desire, that we be conformed to the image of your son, that we reflect your glory, that those around us see us changed. And Father, quite frankly, in all the years of ministry I've, I've served, I do know this is the hardest thing for the church. It's easy to go to church. It's easy to go to functions. It's easy to go to Bible studies, Lord, but it is hard to change personally our character. It is hard to to put off our old self and put on your new self. But I just pray for strength and mercy in the lives of everyone here, that whatever sins they might be struggling with, whatever um, sadness or sorrow that might be in their life, that you just fill them with joy, fill them with your power, that they might overcome whatever it is that is holding them back. Father, if there's anyone here that has never trusted in you, your word simply says, whoever believes in you and confesses with their mouth that you are Lord will be saved. Father, I just pray that they would pray a very simple prayer right now, asking for forgiveness of their sins, trusting in you and following you as Lord and Savior. Your word says they'll be saved, Father. We thank you for your continued ongoing mercy in our lives. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.